Morbidology is a weekly true crime podcast hosted by me, Emily G. Thompson, author of Unsolved Child Murders, Cults Uncovered, and co-author of Unsolved Murders, True Crime Cases Uncovered. 911 emergency. My son shot my husband. I need an ambulance. He's bleeding. Using investigative research combined with primary audio, including 911 calls, interviews, and trial testimony, Morbidology takes a look at some of the world's most heinous murders. Do you know why you're here? For a uh, home invasion gone terribly wrong. Listen to Morbidology now on Apple, Spreaker, Stitcher, Podbean, or wherever else you get podcasts. This is True Consequences, a true crime and mystery podcast with stories based in New Mexico in the American Desert Southwest. This week's promo is brought to you by Morbidology. If you enjoy listening to this show, please rate, subscribe, and review on your favorite podcatcher. True Consequences is fully listener-supported. To support this show, go to patreon.com slash trueconsequences. To keep up with all my updates, you can follow me on Facebook and Instagram at trueconsequencespod and on Twitter at trueconspod. Before we get into the episode, I have a couple of announcements for you. Uh, the first announcement is a recommendation. I've been listening to a show called Always Time for True Crime. That show is hosted by Julia. I just really love her style and her research and the way that she delivers her content. I highly encourage you to go over and check out Always Time for True Crime. Another exciting announcement that I have for you is that I'm going to start live streaming once a week, every Thursday night at 8 o'clock Mountain Time and 10 o'clock Eastern. Topics will vary. We may even go back and look at some old cases from True Consequences. We may discuss new cases. The first session I'm doing is on the 30th of April. And it's going to be a Q&A, ask me anything format. So bring all your questions. In order to watch this live stream and interact with me, you'll need to go to getvocal.com. That's G-E-T-V-O-K-L.com. You can either download the app to your Android or iOS device, or you can view from a desktop or laptop computer. The best thing to do is set up an account on Get Vocal. Subscribe to my channel, that way you'll be notified in advance when I schedule a live stream, and you can join me. Talk to me, let's connect. Especially now that things are so crazy with us being separated, doesn't mean we can't connect still. Check me out at getvocal.com, search for True Consequences. The following episode discusses themes which may be difficult for some listeners. It deals with issues of kidnapping and alleged murder. Listener discretion is advised. Imagine it's a normal fall afternoon. You and your family are going about your normal daily business. Your child sets out to do something that they do every day, and you, of course, think nothing of it. After all, they do this all the time. Now imagine your child disappears, seemingly out of thin air. The panic. The moment of realizing that you may never see them again. The sinking in your stomach and intense waves of fear. This is what Patty Dole of Belen, New Mexico experienced in 1988 when her daughter Tara Calico ventured out on her daily bike ride. 
the afternoon of September 20th would be the last time that Tara Calico was seen by her family and friends. This case gripped the nation and news of this disappearance spread quickly. There seemed to be little in the way of clues to help uncover what happened to Tara. Until a mysterious photo was discovered nearly 2,000 miles away in Florida. This made her disappearance even more bizarre, and the photo only raised more questions. It's now been 32 years since Tara vanished, and the case is still considered unsolved. There are lots of rumors and theories about what happened to Tara, and honestly, it can all be so confusing to sift through. Today I'm joined by my friend Alex. You may remember him from the West Mesa Bone Collector episode. Alex and I discussed this case as best we can in one episode. If you want to learn more about Tara's case, there's a very thorough investigative podcast that is done by Melinda, the host of Vanished, the Tara Calico Investigation. Melinda was able to interview key witnesses in the case. She was also given access to the entire case file, or at least what was left of it. How can we ever hope for this case to be solved when records and evidence just seem to vanish as quickly as Tara did? This is one of the most baffling cases in New Mexico and the United States. It's certainly one of the most baffling cases I've ever looked at. I am Eric Carter-Landine, and this is True Consequences. All right, so uh, today, first of all, I want to talk about this case. It's uh, it's insane, like the amount of twists and turns and uh, different theories and things that have come out. It's an old case. And I did, so I did try to reach out to Melinda Esquivel. She is a podcast producer. Um, she actually has a podcast called Vanished the Terra Calico Investigation, which is where I got some of the information for uh, this episode. I reached out to her to see if she wanted to, you know, be a guest on on this show, and she never responded. So I don't know. Uh, she's probably busy filming her documentary that she's working on with the dude from Breaking Bad. Um, I saw that. Yeah. Yeah, uh, but I did. I did request that, but I do want to plug her show right now because she is from New Mexico. Um, it's a very thorough podcast. She's she's gotten very deep in the investigation. She had access to all the case files and everything. And um, you learn a lot. Uh, things that I thought I knew, apparently I didn't know. Um, I think there's a lot we still don't know about this case, but we are definitely going to talk about uh, the mysterious disappearance of Tara Calico. And then because I tortured you and made you do most of the bone collector, because I didn't want to, <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of take the lead here on on this one, and then I have over last time, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then if you have things you want to add, I'm sure you. I mean, I know you've done your research too. You know, jump in, interrupt me, cut me off, whatever you want to talk about. Um, we can go down some rabbit holes here. The other thing I want to say before we start, I don't mean to cut you off. It looked like you're gonna say something, but I just want to no, say that we are going to throw some names around in this episode. And I just want to mention for my listeners that we're, we're not uh, claiming anybody's guilty of anything. We're just presenting information that we found in our research and uh, everybody is innocent until they're proven guilty. So while there are some actual names being used in this episode, it's not my opinion or uh, the opinion of True Consequences or Alex that these people are definitely responsible, but we do want to just kind of clarify that because we're not judges. Yep, it's true. Cool, man. So I know you know what Boleyn is. Mm -hmm. uh, I Thanks know what Boleyn is. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Balin. 
Balin. Balin. Balin. So for those of you listening or watching right now, we were talking about all the different YouTubers and podcasters that mispronounced the, the city Balin. And it's not their fault. They're not from here. Uh, we have some strange, you know, town and city names. Bernalillo is one of them that most people can't pronounce if they're not from here. Uh, or Jemez. Mm-hmm. So I, if you're not from here, I would ask you to Facebook message me or uh, put something in the comments of this episode of how you would spell Jemez. Just, I'm just curious to see what that looks like. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, uh, so Belen, so Alex and I will pronounce it correctly. Uh, yeah. No offense to those other people. It's not their fault. They're not from here. It, it's just funny. It's just funny when you know. It's, it's it's funny. Yeah, it's frustrating for me. I have a hard time not being mad about that. I think that happened in our episode of uh, the last time we were together. I said Arroyos or something, and you had to stop and be like, "Wait, let's let's explain to everyone what that is, and what, they don't know yeah. what that is or how that is even said." So, Belen, New Mexico. So, I grew up in Socorro, which is about seventy miles south of Albuquerque. Belen is about thirty miles, and so that was always the halfway point when we were driving to Albuquerque and back home. We knew we were halfway to Albuquerque or halfway back home when we hit Belen. So that's just kind of a stupid trivia that nobody cares about. <laughs> but, <laughs> but uh, our own personal landmarks. But so Belen, New Mexico is a small town. Like I said, it's 30 miles south of Albuquerque. It's just off of I-25 and it's in Valencia County, which is on the outskirts of Albuquerque. And that whole county is kind of considered part of the Albuquerque metro statistical area. So they include the population of Valencia mm-hmm. County whenever they look at the overall uh, metro population. And it's very similar to Albuquerque in the sense that it's in the Rio Grande Valley and very much like Albuquerque, there's large mountains in the east and vast mesas in the west, and then the town kind of settles in the valley. And as of 2018, the estimated population of Berlin was around 7,000, so not very big, uh, but the whole county itself is a lot of people. A lot of rural, rural areas. Yeah. And then, rural. <laughs> and you may not know this, Alex, but Berlin, do you know what Berlin is in Spanish, what it means? No, I don't. What does it mean? Bethlehem. Bethlehem? Bethlehem. Okay. Yeah, like where Jesus was born. Okay. Interesting. That's just kind of a weird thing. I think part of that was probably because of the um, Spaniards coming through and conquering this area. That makes um, sense. Yeah. They named a lot of these places. Yeah. Yeah. It makes sense. And historically, because of its location, it's pretty much dead center in New Mexico. It became known as the hub city. Uh, and that's because it has a massive connection to rail, major highways, and they were able to ship a lot of goods and freight through that area and it still continues to be that it's just not as big as it was back in the day right um and then like you said it's also known for its vast farmland and very rural spread out areas so finally belen is the setting of one of the most baffling unsolved cases not just in new mexico but in the u.s and that's the disappearance of tara calico so alex i'm going to take you on a little bit of a different journey here and talk about a story that seems unrelated that or we'll come back to later in the story. So this story <laughs> is about a boy named Michael Henley. Um, he was camping with his family in the summer of 1988 in the Zuni mountains. And those mountains are kind of close to grants. So between um, Albuquerque and Gallup, they were camping, they're having a good time and he disappeared. And his parents freaked out. And I don't know, we're about the same age, I think. Maybe you're a little bit older than me. Um, so you probably remember 
<laughs> you're like 65 right i'm 64 yeah okay all right <laughs> <laughs> no you're in your 40s right yeah i'm 42 yeah okay so we're about the same age so you remember the 80s like it was full-on insanity people were so afraid of child abductions um there was the whole satanic panic thing that was happening where everything was satanism like, oh i remember that i was i was in colorado springs during that time and it was i remember my mom telling me about it like oh there's these huge satanic cults they're deducting children and apparently there was a little bit of truth to that actually in colorado springs but there was some oh. truth to it but a lot of it got blown out of proportion yeah, and a lot yeah. of it got used uh, to cause harm for a lot of people that were innocent of doing anything, uh, which is crazy. That whole thing was insane. But but imagine being a parent, like you're a parent now. Imagine being a parent in 1988 and you're camping and your kid just disappears. Like the first thing you think, someone someone took off, took off with them, right? Um, especially back then, because that's all you heard about on the news. And, you know, I was little in the 80s, but I remember the climate of fear around all of that. My mom even had this whole thing of, you know, she bought me these shoes that had a little zipper on the tongue and she put a quarter in each shoe so that I could call somebody if I got a the ruse, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I remember that. And Shout out to of, Ruse. <laughs> and I don't, I'm not trying to make light of Tara's case because it's, no, I'm sorry. it's a horrible case. No, 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 no. Don't be sorry. But I'm going to throw a little like funny story in here because it just reminded me of it. And if it's not funny, you can tell me and then I'll delete it. Okay. <laughs> so, so when I was, I think like three, maybe my mom was telling me about, you know, all these kids that were getting abducted and molested. And like, she explained it to me and like what it meant. And she was just trying to get me to like, be more aware of things. And she mm -hmm. said, she said, oh yeah. And if a stranger comes and they offers you uh, treats, then they're probably going to try to abduct you and they're probably going to try to molest you and <laughs> this is so stupid i was like i was such a scared kid right so uh we go to the grocery store and there's these little catholic ladies out front with a bake sale <laughs> and so um so the lady goes oh mijo how are you oh do you want a cookie and i took off fucking running as fast as i could screaming i don't want to get molested <laughs> like, crying <laughs> That's hilarious, man. <laughs> when you were so, three? <laughs> I was three, yeah. And that lady, she was so shocked. She didn't know what to think. She was just like, what is happening with this kid? Oh. <laughs> That's the point is, is you know, I, I think that that climate was very palpable for everybody during that time. Everyone so, was very hyper aware back then. Yeah. And I think that Michael's disappearance for his parents was probably immediately in their minds. That's what they thought. Family searched the area surrounding the campsite and they weren't able to find him. And they continued hoping that there would be some clue or lead that would help them find their son. But unfortunately, they wouldn't get any kind of closure for that for several months. Now let's talk about Tara. So Tara was a bright, promising sophomore at UNM. She attended the Valencia campus, which is kind of close to Las Lunas, mm -hmm. which is just north of Berlin. Tara was popular. She was well-liked by her peers and she was seen as very active and athletic. She loved cheerleading, softball, tennis, skiing, all those kinds of activities. She was constantly involved in sports and exercise. It was everything to her. So September 20th, 1988 started just like any other day for her. Um, she left her home in Belen on a bike ride that she regularly took. It was 34 miles round trip. That's which 
Yeah, that's a lot. That's a lot. Yeah. She had some concerns about this ride, in particular because she was having trouble with one of her tires on her bike. So a lot of reports claim that she took her mom's bike that day, which was a pink Huffy. She would always ride her bike along the same route, which was Highway 47, which is one of the highways that goes north and south. It connects Socorro all the way to Albuquerque, and it's a small road. It's one northbound lane and one southbound lane. That's it. She would often go with her mom, Patty Dole, but Patty had stopped taking that bike ride because she had a weird experience where she was being harassed by an aggressive driver. So she tried to convince Tara to bring pepper spray or mace with her on this trip to protect herself, and Tara brushed it off and was like, don't worry about it, Mom, it's fine. Uh, She was known to be very independent and strong-willed, so she really didn't feel the need to bring Mace with her. Plus, like, back then it was still, even though there was all these child abductions happening, it was still, I think, relatively safe to do that in a place like Berlin. Right, right. It was common, I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, I think I grew up just out on my bike all over Socorro without ever worrying about any of that, even though... You know, there was, it was because I felt like I knew what I needed to do. I think probably Tara felt the same way. Like she knew she could deal with it if she had to. Right. Yeah, you've been preparing it for since you were a kid, since the since candy was, cookie incident. Since I, three. <laughs> since I was running away from the nuns. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so on her way out, Tara told her mom that if she wasn't back by noon to come looking for her because she had a date with her boyfriend at 1230 to play tennis. And there's an investigation discovery episode of Unsolved about this case. It's pretty short, uh, but they interview Tara's sister. And her sister describes Tara as extremely athletic and organized. Now, for me, I barely exercise at all. Like, I just, you know, it just don't because I'm lazy. Uh, I probably should. I have high blood pressure and all these other things that I should probably (laughs) exercise, you know, but I don't. I can't imagine riding 34 miles on a Huffy. Um, no, dude, that would do me <laughs> in. I would be dead. <laughs> That'd be it. Yeah. And then, but the, like, the, not just that. She's like, hey, 34 mile bike ride. Cool. Uh, then I'm going to go play tennis, which is yeah, also like, up tennis. <laughs> super intense exercise. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess her sister described her perfectly, you know, when she talks about how extremely athletic she was, because that is way above my head. I can't figure that out at all. So another characteristic Tara was known for was her meticulous planning and the idea that she was going to ride 34 miles in about two and a half hours. It just seems a little intense, you know, like not likely that she'd be able to make that entire trip, which would make sense why she would tell her mom to come find her if it were 12 o'clock. Because I think two and a half hours, even if you're in great shape, that's pushing it for that long of a drive probably. But what do I know? I don't do shit Um, like that. I've never gone for a bike that long. (laughs) Ever. No. I think the most I've done is like 10 miles. I'm not even sure. (laughs) (laughs) That's sad. (laughs) Yeah, it is. She wanted to make sure she didn't miss that date with her boyfriend, Jack Cole. So she put her cassette tape in her Walkman uh, and her headphones on and she headed out for a bike ride. Do you remember? uh, Do you remember Walkmans? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I had I had a definitely had a Walkman with the bass boost and everything, and then I eventually got the CD Walkman, 
That was even better. <laughs> You'd do like the anti-skip, but you had to replace the batteries like every 10 minutes or so, you know? Um, so for the younger listeners that may not know what the hell we're talking about, yeah, right. um, <laughs> a Walkman was a cassette player, a portable cassette player. So if you like watch any old 80s mo- movies, you see them with their stereos. Those things were giant. Like the ones they held on their shoulders, they were Oh, the boom boxes. Yeah, yeah the that... boom boxes. So like the, the Walkman was just a small... It's like an iPod, but for cassette player for cassette tapes, right? Yep. That's probably the best way to describe it. But even iPods are old now. So. And if you're really fancy, you'd get the Sport Walkman that was yellow. You know what I mean? What he had. That's what Todd yeah. had. It was like waterproof, you know? Yeah, yeah. She probably needed it for all the exercise she was doing. I'm saying. <laughs> so. Needless to say, uh, her mom, Patty, became very worried when Tara didn't show up at noon. And she started to drive around looking for her along the route that Tara was known to take. Remember that her mom used to go with her, so she knew this route as well. Mm -hmm. Um, She drove up and down Highway 47 and then decided to go home to see if maybe she had missed Tara. Maybe her bike would be in the garage and hopefully she was uh, playing tennis with Jack. But when she drove up, she noticed that the bike wasn't there and she started to panic. Meanwhile, Tara's boyfriend, Jack, calls to the house because she didn't show up for the tennis date. And when he learned that Tara was missing, he immediately leaves to help her parents find her. And so I'm going to just say, like, I'm probably not going to do as good of a job on the specific details of this case as like Melinda has, because I I think I've been researching this for about three weeks now. So it's taken me a lot of time. I I still don't feel like I'm going to be able to do this justice in one episode. So I just want to qualify that and say, if you want more in-depth detail, listen to Melinda's podcast. Right. because this is just, there's so much to this and no, I'm going to miss something. So I'm apologizing ahead of time. Tara's family and friends and the police spent pretty much the rest of the afternoon and the evening looking for her along Highway 47. They stumbled upon some bike and truck tire tracks on the side of the road near Rio Communities, which is a small village uh, just east of Belen. On some reports, they say that there were signs of a struggle. Some reports don't say that at all. I don't know what the truth is. Um, But they did find Tara's broken yellow Walkman and the cassette tape that she had. And it was all there on the side of the road. And her family believed strongly that this was her. Right? It was Boston, yeah. Yeah, but and I was like, well, how do they know that was her tape or whatnot? And I was like, well, it must have been like a recorded tape with her handwriting on it or something like they something how would they know that exactly that was hers yeah I well i think they knew that that walkman was hers but the tape was separate than the walkman right wasn't yeah it? yeah the tape was found like out of the walkman and so they that's why people thought that maybe she was trying to leave like a trail or something right. along those lines yeah right yeah they believe that this was her attempt at leaving evidence for people to find her and to show that she was there Right. Um, and her Walkman was distinctive, like we talked about. It was the bright yellow sport Walkman. And her family really, they knew right away, as soon as they saw it, that it was hers. There's a lot of eyewitnesses, according to police documents. There's there's quite a few eyewitnesses. Their stories aren't all the same, but they're all kind of similar. Search and rescue began combing the area. They did this for five days straight. Couldn't find anything related to Tara. But then these people started kind of coming out of the woodwork. A lot of people claim to have seen Tara on her bike being followed by a 1950s light-colored Ford pickup with a camper. 
Um, some okay, reports handmade say, camber is what I heard too, like something that would be really distinguishable. Yeah, so some people said uh, homemade camper, mm -hmm. and then some some reports don't say that at all. So I don't know which one's true. I do have a sketch of it that I'll post on the website and on the show notes, and it'll be on social, of course. So this truck was very distinctive, especially in the 80s. There weren't a lot of those types of trucks driving around. Um, the sheriff's department released that sketch I just showed you. And there's also a sketch of the alleged driver, which isn't very helpful, um, but it's kind of spooky looking. I don't know if you saw that. So one witness named Ishmael De La Rosa claimed to have seen Tara being followed on her bike by a man with bright red hair in an old Ford pickup with a camper. He tried several times to give a statement to the police and was brushed off and treated like he was wasting their time. This was according to him. Bright red hair. Bright red hair. Another witness, Baron Freeman, claims that he saw Tara on Highway 47 as he drove to the airport. He did get a good look at the driver of the truck, and he became worried about Tara as he passed her. So he even tried to like make eye contact with her to make sure she was okay, but she completely ignored him. She was just like jamming out to her tape and riding her bike. So he was like, okay, she must be fine. Uh, and he took off and, and just went to the airport and caught his flight. When he found out that Tara went missing, he spent years trying to give statements to the police and no one would ever take his statement huh. it wasn't it wasn't until 20 years after her disappearance that the sheriff at the time then spoke with baron another witness saw two men in a truck following closely behind tara as she biked so some people said one man some people said two men um, she got a good look at the men and was even able to identify them in photos police showed her they gave her some books of pictures of suspects and she identified both of the people in the truck. On the podcast, uh, Vanished, Tara Calico Investigation, she, she's interviewed on that. And she talks about how she remembers pointing out the people that were responsible and that the police really had like no reaction to it. Did they one of them have bright red hair? I don't know uh, <laughs> if that's what she saw. Uh, but one of the people that is suspected to be involved does have bright red hair. Uh -huh. So... They took, they took those photos, they took her, her statement, and then they left, and she never heard anything back about it after that. And one of the men that she identified in the photo, turns out, was the son of then-sheriff. The sheriff was Lawrence Romero Sr., and the son was Lawrence Romero Jr. This is out there. It's on Melinda's podcast. It's all over YouTube. Again, people are innocent until they're proven guilty. Uh, but that's who she identified, as well as another gentleman that was... Uh, known to run around with Lawrence. Hmm. So anything you want to add so far, Alex, anything else? Well, where does this like uh, Polaroid famous Polaroid picture come into play? That's a perfect segue into the next part of this story. I it might be. <laughs> right on time. I mean, um, if, if you're anything like me, I, well, I know I'm not from New Mexico. I've been here like 22 years now though. So um, I consider myself a native now, but I, I heard about this case um, before that. I think I was living in Colorado or somewhere else at the time. And the thing about this case that really stuck out and what made everyone really drawn to it was this picture. Yeah. And when you talked about, hey, I want to do this case with you, I didn't put two and two together till I, I, I kind of did a little bit of research and was like, oh my goodness, this was, this was a big case back in the day. Um, yeah. It still is. Yeah, it still is. So I'm going to pull this up right now. Um, let me see if I can figure this out. Do you see the, the Polaroid there? Uh-huh, sure do. 
Okay, so this is on people.com slash crime uh, using their uh, website to show this photo. So this photo was found in Port St. George, Florida. So, so June 15th, 1989. Uh, this is several so months. Nine months later or something, right? Nine months later. A woman at a convenience store in Port St. George, Florida found a Polaroid photo in a, a parking spot. It looked like it had fallen out of a vehicle. And when she saw the photo, it sent chills down her spine. She called the police, told them about the photo, and that a white windowless Toyota cargo van was parked in the spot before the photo was found. She described a man in his 30s with a mustache. The police attempted to locate the van and its driver, but they were unsuccessful. They went as far as setting up roadblocks and even showing flyers to everybody that they came in contact with. So the photo itself it really took off nationwide. It kind of exploded, to your point, Alex, on the national scene after this photo came out. And um, the police were very concerned about these two kids that were tied up in this picture. They were worried that something was happening to them or going to happen to them. And it's a, it's a pretty terrifying photo. It shows a female, probably in her uh, late teens, early 20s, tied up and gagged along with a young boy. He looks to be about nine or 10 years old. Um, he's also tied up and gagged. It looks like it's kind of staged because there's a book sitting right next to the female victim. And that book is My Sweet Audrina by V.C. Andrews. So because you weren't a teenage girl in 1988 and I wasn't a teenage girl in 1988, um, we probably weren't aware that V.C. Andrews was a very popular young adult author at the time. A lot of teenage girls really liked reading her stories and they were kind of fucked up stories. Like she wrote Flowers in the Attic. Ah, uh, okay. I, I am I am aware of that book. I'm not aware of this this book that was in the van with them. Did you watch that movie? Flowers in the Attic? Yeah. It's been a minute, but yeah, yeah. Oh, it's messed up, man. It's a messed up movie. Um, but you know, if you like true crime, you'll probably like that that movie. It's old. Okay. Uh, it's it's creepy. Um, <laughs> VC Andrews was known for dealing with topics like incest and uh, domestic violence and all these like really intense things. So it's just funny that that was kind of popular with teenage girls at the time, but yeah, right. Um, That's pretty dark. Yeah. But what am I like, who am I to talk? I'm into true crime and all this other oh, stuff too. So right. yeah. <laughs> That's yeah, true. Who am I to judge? Tara was a fan of VC Andrews, like most teenage girls her age. There's been speculation about it being her favorite book. I think mom had said that, right? Yeah, that was her. Um, and, I, and I've heard that, but I've also heard that uh, her mom said that it was her favorite author uh, and not necessarily her favorite book. So I don't know if that, that matters, but there was that connection to Tara, her. which was her favorite author, right, um, right. Which, is, which is why people started to think maybe it was her in this photo. When they enhanced the photo, they found a phone number or what looked like a phone number scratched into the cover of the book. Oh, wow. And, and only part of the number was was visible. They couldn't make out a couple of the digits in there. So they had been trying with the help of some very smart people to d decode that number and see if it could lead to a clue of of who this girl was and who was responsible for her abduction. That didn't really pan anything out for them. There was really nothing that, that came out of that. And 
on Melinda's podcast, she talks about reminding her listeners not to try to figure out the phone number and call people because the chance of that number even being in service anymore is pretty small. Right. I mean, this is 32 years ago, so it was probably a landline back then. This kind of brings back Michael Henley's story. So when this photo explodes on the national scene, uh, Tara's family says they think that it's her. And Michael Henley's family stands up and says that they think that it's Michael. Both Michael's parents and Tara's parents go to Port St. George, Florida to look at this photo. They're both convinced. I think to this day, family is still convinced that that is Tara Calico in that photo. I don't think it's likely that it's her. Well, didn't they have like the FBI look into it and uh, even Los Alamos Labs looked into it and they all had different conclusions, right? Yeah. So the FBI and Los Alamos Labs both analyzed the photograph thoroughly. Um, They both claimed that it wasn't Tara, but Scotland Yard also analyzed it and they disagreed with the FBI. They believe strongly that the photo was Tara. Um, It's hard to say. I think you could split hairs on this whole thing and and Los Alamos did there's a report out there I haven't seen it uh, but Melinda goes through it word by word where they're talking about the waviness of her hair uh, the shape of her eyebrows the shape of the jawline they're comparing you know different photos of Tara to this uh, which is why they felt strongly that it wasn't her but yeah, people yeah. who know Tara still claim that that photo was her let's say it's not her um that's still a really creepy photo to be finding. And so what, what, who are those people in the photo then? Right. You know, is it, do you think it's one of those situations where someone mocked it up just to stir up some issue or, you know, cause I mean, honestly, you can't see that their hands are really are bound in that at all. I mean, it's, it's, it's such a, it's such a mysterious photo. It's really it's scary. It's creepy. There's a lot of theories out there about, about the photo being staged. There's even a theory that it was a joke that like that parents thought it would be funny to take a picture of their kids like that. Um, but if you look at the eyes of the boy, that's what I'm saying. The eyes of that kid, the girl, not so much, but the eyes of the boy, there's something he looks scared to death to me. He looks terrified. Yeah. yeah looks she, really looks, she looks pissed off. He looks scared. That little boy looks scared. Yeah. And, and Patty, Tara's mom said, that that's exactly how she would expect Tara's expression to be in that situation, that she would be pissed off. She wouldn't be scared. She would be mad. So she thinks that she's glaring at whoever the person is that took that photo. And if you look at her eyes, she does look really angry. Oh, it looks, it's a definite like mean glare for sure. Like a death stare, right? Yeah. 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 And there was like, I know that she had a, a scar somewhere from an injury and a birthmark on her leg or something. And those were supposedly in the photo as well. I mean, I haven't been able to, you know, observe this photo as close as some of the experts have, obviously. I just looked saw it online and I can't see anything like that. You know, the, the, it looks very hard to see. It's a Polaroid, you know, the detail in that photo is, is hard. Yeah. And, and the FBI even went as far as going to Polaroid to ask them to look at the dyes and stuff that were used in that picture. And they were able to determine when that photo was taken based on when that lot of film was released into the uh, public. Wow. But, but for me, I mean, the question is, why did that photo get found in Florida? I think that's a question no matter what. Why was it found in Florida? If it isn't Tara, then, you know, they probably still want to find whoever that is. But it doesn't seem like anybody's come forward to say that might be my daughter who was missing or that might be my son who was missing. So- Did no one else like stand up and say like, hey, that could be my, you know, 
sister, my brother, my son. Not that my I father. could find. Not that I could find. Okay. And I I would think that somebody would have mentioned that. Yeah. You know. Yeah. That was the case. But I do know that Port St. George back then was an, a known area for human trafficking and, ch- and child trafficking to get children to leave the U.S. into other countries. The bottom line is whatever happened to those kids is is probably not good. Yeah. And, um, it's really sad. It hurts my brain to think about, you know, is it her? Is it not her? And who is it? And I mean, it, the parents were on Oprah. Yeah. It's hard I, to believe I, that there's still no answers. I, uh, I don't know. What they, they thought, though, in the, also in that picture was uh, Michael, right? It was Michael. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and so that's the kind of the part where I think that maybe this is this whole theory of him and her kind of connecting goes awry. Right. So let's talk about that. Michael's parents think it's Michael. Tara's parents think it's her. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody's kind of proceeding like that's the case. And, and you know, rightfully so. Uh, Michael disappeared in New Mexico same year, a couple months before Tara. And they both vanished. So it would make sense to think that they could be together because they came from the same place. But when, um, I think it was 19... 19- uh, 89, they did find Michael's body, unfortunately, uh, seven miles from the campsite of where his parents and him were camping. So the autopsy ruled that his death was a result of exposure. Jeez. So it sounds like he just got lost. Yeah. Like he like, went off to play and he got lost. I mean, depending on what time of year it was, it could have been really cold up in there. And yeah, that's, that's terrible. Yeah. So then that just takes Michael away from that whole photo. So you got to figure out who that kid is in the photo that's not michael then and right I, I, who is that kid where did he yeah. come from you know who's looking for him? somebody has to be looking for him you think someone have to be looking for him unless it's all a hoax unless it's a hoax unless it's set up to make it look like it is yeah yeah and it happens all the time too people do stuff like that it's 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 people claim that they're the killers when they're not the killers you know all yeah. the time like you know they'd send out things to red herrings to confuse police and um it yeah it's wild so that's one theory actually oh yeah that that the actual people who killed uh they think tara was killed and they think that the people responsible for killing her staged that photo Mm. drove it all the way to florida which is a lot of like trouble to go through but there's accounts of somebody with New Mexico plates being at the same gas station. And uh, wow, that's really going far to like separate yourself from, you know, yeah. what's happening. It's uh, extreme. Yeah, that's, that's pretty extreme. So I know there's a ton of theories of yeah. what happened and what, what people think and everything. What let's go, maybe we should go over some of those theories. Sure. Okay. So uh, one of the theories, of course, we just talked about was that they were abducted and probably sold into human trafficking, both her and Michael. We know that Michael's dead, um, but there's still that idea that maybe Tara was abducted and um, sold as a child. Yeah. Some kind of trafficking situation. Um, But in 2008, so the sheriff at the time claimed that two teenagers hit Tara with a vehicle and accidentally killed her. Um, And he believed that they covered up her death. He also claimed that because there was no body, uh, that that was found. There was no way that he could press charges against against these two individuals, but he knew who they were. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And I, I think Tara's sister also believes that this is more likely what happened to her. It's more likely that she never left Valencia County. It's more likely that uh, she was either accidentally or intentionally murdered and her body was buried somewhere in the desert where nobody would know where she was. Right. And that seems to be a, a pretty prevalent theory, at least in the city of Belen. There's a lot of rumors going around and I grew up in a really small town and uh, I know what that's like. You know, everybody talks about everything. Everybody knows everybody. So it's hard to differentiate the truth from what's embellished or exaggerated or fake in those types of scenarios, especially as these types of stories get passed around back and forth throughout the community. The theory is that there were two boys kind of sexually harassing and catcalling Tara as they drove behind her, just being typical douchebags chasing women and that they accidentally hit her bike. Tara's sister believes that the the families of the boys uh, were involved in a cover-up and that they know where her body is. And because Berlin is so small, you know, there's just a ton of different rumors. One theory that I think is out there and probably not real uh, is that David Parker Ray was responsible for her disappearance. I don't think that's that's likely just because... The toy box killer? Yeah, yeah. Hmm. I mean, I guess anything is possible. It's a possibility, but he didn't really go crazy far for his victims, did he? He did go to Albuquerque. He did? Mm-hmm. That's where oh. he got Cynthia. Oh, that's right. That's right. Well, I mean, you never know. Um, I know there's a, there was he had a, a lot of victims and a lot of them you know, probably that did survive, won't come forward and stuff, you know, so. Um, well, he was very handy. He could build things, so he could have built a camper himself. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. Didn't think about yeah. that. Okay. So that's a theory that's out there. There's really no evidence to back that up. There's right. Really nothing right. That, that says that happened, but that doesn't mean it didn't happen. The weird thing that happened, and this is something I want to touch, touch on because I think it's important, is Melinda, the host of the podcast I've been referring to, um, started to receive threats, threats of violence, threats of harm against her for asking questions because she immersed herself in the community and started chasing down leads. People did not like that. So that to me is suspicious. <laughs> I mean, why are you going to react that way if you really didn't do anything? Yeah, no, I agree. Um, yeah. So it just seems odd that after starting to investigate this cold case, I mean, this was like 20 years later. Like, why would that happen unless there was something people wanted to hide? That's that's right. my point. Right. If, looking from the outside in, it looks very suspicious to me. Yeah, it just seems like people were going out of their way to keep this from being solved. There, there was a lot of um, a lot of things that weren't looked at, I think. You know, there was a lot of leads that weren't looked at. There was a lot of people that weren't listened to. Um, yeah. And I know that there's a new sheriff that's on the case right now, and I'm, I'm hoping that he can kind of shed some light on what's going on and what happened 32 years ago. I think that I might regret saying this, but doing this show and looking into different cases, um, looking into Cotton and Judy, looking into this case, looking into my brother's case, it's clear that there, there definitely is some problems with the way justice is handled in some of these smaller communities. And it seems like if you know the right people or connect with the right people, you get some kind of protection. And that's wrong. It's wrong. It's 
I mean, this is why people are able to do things seemingly without any kind of consequence in the state. It's a, it's a big part of it and it's, it needs to stop. It's just absurd that, you know, it's like living in a, a weird, corrupt place, <laughs> you know, it's strange. It really is. This case screams to me, cover up. <laughs> it really does. It sounds like, you know, that a couple of people got away with some a very horrible crime. Um, mm -hmm. And and I'm sorry, like you don't lose evidence. Like if you're if you have are following procedures, you shouldn't be losing interviews and evidence and recordings. Like how do those things disappear? Yeah. Who has access to that stuff? And if if like just random people have access to that stuff, then there's a problem there too, right? Like if it even if it is just like negligence. Mm -hmm. that's still not good yeah it's, not, it's, I mean, <laughs> it's just a little too convenient yeah yeah well it's convenient that the sheriff was the sheriff at the time and mm -hmm. one of the people named was his son that's just bizarre and you know i think that i don't know the story i don't know who really did it i don't know who's responsible for it but it, it all looks very suspicious when you look at it from this side of it of you know of history i guess Oh yeah. From what I keep hearing from all over the place is like everyone never talks about it, but everyone says they know, they know what happened. Yeah. And just no one's willing to actually come out and talk about it. Yep. It's crazy. Yeah. So I want to read you a couple of these excerpts here. This is the New Mexico supplemental report. Uh, it's on Patreon, but you can find it online as well. And this is part of the narrative. So this is the state police cold case investigator typing up his thoughts. On Saturday, October 26th, 2013, at approximately 2.16 p.m., I conducted an interview with Frank M., a former sheriff's deputy with the Valencia County Sheriff's Department. They're talking about who was, who was in the room, basically some cold case investigators and uh, Bernalillo County detectives. Mr. M. has been dispatched to conduct an interview with Henry Brown, who stated he had information about the Tara Calico case. He wanted to pass it on before he died. Mr. Brown wanted to speak, Deputy M, because he was the public information officer. So here's the interview. Deputy M said he made contact with Mr. Brown at his residence, and Mr. Brown explained that he was dying and wanted to get this off his chest. <clears throat> Deputy M utilized his department-issued tape recorder for the interview. Mr. Brown explained that around the time of Tara Calico's disappearance, Lawrence Romero Jr. lived in a trailer home his father had as a rental property just down the street from him. Mr. Brown explained that they had made a makeshift basement under the trailer home where they would party and smoke marijuana. Dave S., another friend that was tall and had red hair, would come to the home that Lawrence Romero Jr. lived in, and Mr. Brown would join them to party in the basement. <sighs> Mr. Brown said that on one occasion they were all drinking margaritas and making fajitas. He was in the basement with them, and he had a weird feeling. He looked down, and he noticed what he called a grave wrapped up in a blue tarp he believed was a small body he said they started talking about the tara calico case that they were searching for her and they began talking about how they raped and killed her mr brown said he knew the kids because he had worked at the school and he knew these kids smoked weed and skipped school mr brown said one of them used to be her girlfriend and one of them was jealous it's kind of hard to follow the narrative but Try to bear with me here. They started talking about another friend that had been out with them named Leroy Chavez. They talked to him 
about what they had done and they warned him not to talk about it or they would come and get him. They said they were driving one of the guy's older trucks that day and they all knew that she rode her bike down that highway. They explained that they hit her with the truck and they put her in the back with Leroy. They took her out to the gravel pits where they raped her. Uh, Lawrence Romero Jr. said she got ballsy, stood up and was going to make sure they were all going to jail. So he went, he got a knife from the truck and David and Leroy and him held her down while Lawrence stabbed and killed her. Wow. He said they drug her body and put her in a bush nearby wow. until they got nervous when the search started for her. He said they joked and they kept her nearby. Uh, Mr. Brown believed she was under the tarp, hidden in the basement, because no one would know to look for her there. He said this whole thing had to do with drugs, that Jeff and Lawrence sold drugs, and the only reason they never got caught was because his dad was the sheriff. <sighs> and they say that his dad hired a deputy, who later became the sheriff, and that wow. that deputy had their back. He said, your sheriff, there is not innocent, but he just kept saying that deputy has our back. Mr. Brown said they kept talking about a pond out by the property owned by the redhead guy near the mountains. They believe that they took her body out to the pond on the property. And they believe they took the bike to the junkyard in Berlin and got rid of it. He kept saying that this is all about drugs. So this is kind of the, I think the theory that Melinda landed on based on this one of these interviews, but there's several other interviews that kind of corroborate this idea. I don't know. It's hard to say. Well, how much follow-up was done after this, this interview? Because I mean, that sounds pretty credible. That sounds like a pretty legit story. But like I said, once again, people make up stuff all the time. It's like, I mean, like yeah. a horror movie. <laughs> yeah. But you don't ever know his relationship to these guys either. Yeah. You know, were they his bullies? And yeah, I mean, it's just all hearsay. Exactly. But it's pretty, I agree with you. It is pretty convincing. So later the interviewer was contacted by Melinda Esquivel about this report and the tapes of this interview. Mm. And he, he was advised that there was a record that he had taken the report, but there was no report or any documentation of any tapes that were placed into evidence. She had the report number of the missing report, but there was no report. It was not in the case file. It was gone. And so were the recordings. So the tape, yeah. So the tape of this interview is gone. Why? Oh, oh gosh. I, I bet a lot of people wish they could find that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, that that's pretty compelling. And it, so that kind of gives me the idea that maybe this is a real story, uh, a real account of something. Yeah. Because why would it just disappear? Unless someone was trying to protect somebody. Right. Okay. So there's a bunch more in this document. I mean, it just goes on forever. So many people, a lot of the stories are claiming the same thing that basically Lawrence and these guys killed her and disposed of her body. So all four of these people that were named, I, I believe all four of them are dead now. And one died, Lawrence died allegedly playing Russian roulette. Which, okay. Maybe. Okay. Another guy was hit by a car, run over. So who hit him and why? Like, oh, wow. There's no there's no information on that. Um, I don't know the other two guys, but I, I did remember reading that they are all dead. Russian roulette and just getting hit by a car and run over. Like I said, it's not that weird. The Russian roulette's pretty weird. You know, you yeah. don't hear about that very often. I mean, maybe there's people that are that stupid. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, 
that's I a- get sued. <laughs> I get sued by the American Russian Roulette League. <laughs> so it's just a dark, depressing, horrible case. There was also a rumor that there's a woman who has Tara's body in a freezer at her house. That is weird. <laughs> okay. People should probably go check that out. I mean, just because even if it's not Tara or not, she's saying she has a body in a freezer. Yeah. Keep that out, guys. Maybe go call that person and see what's going on. Okay. So, what? Uh. <laughs> um, yeah. Some, some lady just called and said, Hey, yeah, I know what's up. She's in my freezer. Yeah. Well, what's I don't think the lady called. I think someone called on her. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. Hey, this lady's got her in the freezer. Yeah. But did there's no follow up on that really either? Yeah. So that's probably BS too, then. Yeah. It's probably, again, somebody trying to get revenge on someone else, cause yeah, problems yeah. for somebody else. So there are a lot of rumors. There's a lot of missing evidence. There's a lot of potential suspects in this case. And I was telling you by text this week that, you know, I was going down the rabbit hole with this story. It's just every time you think you got somewhere, there's a new twist to it, there's a new angle, there's somebody saying something different. It's all so convoluted. And I think maybe that's on purpose. Yeah. Um, conveniently convoluted, you know, yeah. what an insane story. Um, and it's been 32 years and it's just, everyone goes in circles. It's just, it's just, I mean, even for the short time that I've been doing some digging on this story, um, I found myself and, you know, cause I was texting you, I'd just be like, Oh my God, but wait, what, what is this? What is this? You know, I was hearing stories that, Oh, we saw her in California. Um, she's fine. Or something, you know, um, and people were, you know, trying to help out as much as they could, or I, I don't, I don't know. Um, but for some reason, this case has just never gotten anywhere. And then when you start looking um, from the internal ens- uh, aspect of it, what was going on with the um, investigations and everything, then you start seeing why maybe this has been so long to uh, be able to be solved, which is unfortunate. That's just not, it's just not right. I feel really bad for her family and her mom passed away, uh, never knowing what happened to her daughter. And it really listening to them talk about her sounded like they loved her very much like she was very much loved and wanted and a very big part of that family's lives and it's heartbreaking that something this terrible whatever happened to her was terrible it's it's sad that that happened and it's sad that there's no justice for her and that this case is not solved it doesn't it doesn't make any sense and the FBI is working on it. I know, like, throughout my, you know, watching different things and reading, uh, the FBI still is, you know, had their tip line, you know, the, they're still looking. Uh, the Valencia County Sheriff's, I know they're still saying, hey, you know, anybody come forward, you know, even the littlest thing, like, you know, I know where her bike is or um, it just something. The FBI did offer a $20,000 reward. Uh, as of October of last year, for any information that leads to either Tara's whereabouts or the conviction and arrest of the people responsible for her disappearance. You know, it sounds like she had a bright future ahead of her and it was stolen from her. Um, If you have any information, you're asked to call the FBI at 505-889-1300. You can also call the Valencia County Sheriff office as well as the Bernalillo County Sheriff's office those two offices are still involved in the investigation as well 
but it's a, it's a sad, terrible case. I probably didn't do justice to Tara's story. And uh, I feel like willfully inadequate, not willfully, but like I feel completely inadequate in, in reporting this story because I don't feel like I was able to present her as a person in the way I wanted to. And, and I feel bad about that because for anybody who listens to my show, you know, that's really important to me. You know, I hope that I did some semblance of, of a decent job for her and her family. And yeah, if you know anything, just uh, call somebody. Any, anything else you want to add or any uh, recommendations you have for the listeners or anything that you want to say? I want to say something to you, but I'll let you go first. Hey man, just thanks for having me on the show again. You know, I enjoy this. Um, it's a, it's a good opportunity, especially now when I'm cooped up in my house to see somebody's awesome face and get to talk about a really awesome story. Thank you. Yeah, man, I'm I'm glad to have you. I uh, I can't wait to have you on another episode. We're already talking about that. That was yeah. going to be another another rabbit hole one that we're probably not going to do justice to either. That's going to be a big one too. <laughs> that might be a two or three parter. We might have to see how that goes. Yeah. Right. Um, <laughs> but yeah, let's, let's start working on that one and, and bring something else interesting and different from this uh, to these listeners. So cool, man. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. This is True Consequences, a true crime and mystery podcast with stories based in New Mexico in the American desert southwest. 